his fourth and last lecture, Pastor Steve Brinegar, the president of our board of directors and a graduate of Western Forum Seminary, is going to teach us regarding the resurrection of the righteous in the beginning of the millennium and the resurrection of the unrighteous at the end of the millennium. You've made it to the final lecture. And this final lecture is on a vital doctrine of the Bible. I would like to just say it's been an honor to be included along with three men who taught me when I was in seminary. You might notice that the location has shifted from the Tacoma Bible Presbyterian Church to here in sunny Florida. And we're at my study at the Grace Bible Presbyterian Church church. My topic is that of the resurrection, and it's a topic that flows out of the previous topics. You notice that in Dr. Battle's lecture, how often the idea of resurrection, particularly what I'm going to call the first resurrection or the resurrection of the righteous or the resurrection of life, it has many names, how that came up. You also heard it in Professor Lynch's lecture about the resurrection coming before the final battle against Magog and Gog, and that will come up again in this lecture. My lecture is on the resurrection. It's particularly on the the fact that there are two resurrections separated by a period of time. My approach to this topic is going to be first to deal with the the fact that resurrection is a foundational biblical truth. Secondly, that resurrection is of several types in the Bible, and that the final resurrection is of two types. And then my third point is that the resurrection, that final resurrection, will happen in two distinct phases. Now, as you hear that outline let me acknowledge at the very beginning that points one and two are common to biblical Christianity, that no matter what your view of eschatology is, you actually have to agree with those first two points, as I will show. But it helps us understand something very important about eschatology, and that is no matter which of the systems that you hold to, we have more in agreement than we disagree. Now, certainly, we have to know and try and understand what the Bible says on this issue, because the Bible has a lot to say on this issue. But as Dr. Battle said, we want to hold that with with grace towards others who might disagree. Of course, he was talking about the tribulation, but we could extend that to the, the three major systems of eschatology. So that in points one and points two, I'm not saying anything that others' uh, different views, like an all-millennialist or a post-millennialist, I'm not going to say anything that they don't heartily agree with. However, I have a certain point in doing it this way, and that is as we get to, at the end of the lecture, Revelation chapter 20, the, the passage which helps us see the phases of the resurrection, I want us to be able to approach that passage and talk about the options and compare the passage to the options of how we might understand that passage. 
to see that it's not just Revelation chapter 20 that helps us comprehend this idea of two phases to the resurrection, to that final resurrection, but instead it is that consistent theme of all of Scripture. And that as we compare the different possible types of resurrection, I think we'll see that the most uh, direct connection would be to the resurrection as of the just as the first resurrection and the resurrection of the unrighteous as the second or the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. So let's get into it. And the first thing I want us to see is that resurrection is a foundational biblical truth. The reality is, is that resurrection was a very early doctrine of the people of God. And we see that, for instance, in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. In that passage, Job says that though his body be corrupted, though his flesh be eaten by worms, yet in his flesh he will see his Redeemer. Job is is likely a contemporary of Abraham. Therefore, the, the doctrine that we find in that book, the words that we find in the mouth of Job, are a very early expression, an expression that uh, happens before the Pentateuch is given by Moses, for instance, and yet from Adam to Job, and for all time, the people of God have had an understanding about resurrection, because resurrection is a foundational biblical truth. Not only do we see it as a very early doctrine of the people of God, but secondly, we see that it's foundational because Paul said so. First place I'm going to turn to is Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, as he speaks about his own testimony, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the call for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now skip down to verses 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul, as he's talking about his service of the Lord, as he's talking about uh, his, his desire for good works, it's rooted and grounded in the idea of resurrection. He's exhorted, he's encouraged, he's motivated in his service as he looks forward. To what is to come, where we will have a body like unto the Lord's, that it was motivating everything that he did. Also notice in verse 21 how the possibility of a resurrection is rooted and grounded in the power of God to conquer all things. Resurrection is not something we can prove scientifically. It is received on faith. Remember that 
the confession talks about faith is receiving everything in the word of God as just that, the word of God. Receiving everything in scripture as uh, having the authority of God behind it, because that is what it truly is. And so the, the idea of resurrection here is foundational. Many of you have probably thought that, as I talk about what Paul says about the resurrection, that I should have turned first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and do that with me now. 1 Corinthians 15 is just a wondrous chapter about the resurrection, about the glory of God, about what we uh, can expect. It ends with just powerful verses about our service. I'm going to read starting in verse 10, and we could read the whole chapter but and preach the whole chapter, but that would be all my time, and that is uh, something that I would encourage you to read as you think about this, as you meditate on this wonderful doctrine of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary... I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, or so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, Paul here, he's talked about the gospel. He's described the gospel in the beginning of this chapter as three things the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talked about that's what saved them. That's how they have their standing before God. And now he asks the question, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Just completely rule that out as a point of theology, as something that's not possible. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Remember what he said in Philippians 3. Christ's resurrection is like our resurrection. So if we're not going to be raised, he's arguing backwards, then Christ is not raised. Verse 14 now, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, even Christ has not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about that for a second. Think about what Paul is saying here. That if if Christ is not risen because there is no resurrection, then our Christian faith is pointless. We are to be, he says at the end of verse 19, of all people most pitied. Because the, the hope that we have is based upon the resurrection. Fundamentally, foundationally on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ But that is a a resurrection like unto ours and his bodily resurrection, that we will have that too. And that is the great hope and blessing of the church. So Paul says resurrection is a foundational biblical doctrine. Not only did Paul say it, but Jesus said it. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, 
Jesus said to her, now this is the chapter, two sisters have lost their beloved brother, someone that Jesus loved. And Jesus is comforting her. Jesus, uh, verse 25, he's speaking to Martha here, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He describes himself and his ministry in these resurrection terms. That what Jesus has done is to to give us everlasting life. Think about how that language is so wrapped up in the idea of resurrection. There's one last passage uh, on this particular point I want to turn to uh, very quickly, and that's Matthew chapter 22. In verses 23 through 33, the Lord Jesus Christ is confronting the Sadducees, who are sad, you see, that's how I was told to remember it, because they don't believe in a resurrection. And they come along and they ask him this fancy philosophical question about a woman who has seven husbands. They're all brothers. And she marries the first, and he dies having no children. So the law of Moses made provision, and she, in sequence, marries all of them until there's no more brothers. And they come to Jesus, and they say, in the resurrection, Jesus, who will have her as a wife? This was their great philosophical question to disprove that there must not be a resurrection because this doesn't make logical sense to them. Jesus answered them in verse 29. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In these lectures, we've truly seen some wondrous and glorious things. We've thought about the millennial kingdom. We've thought about the return and therefore conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thinking about resurrection here and and having perfect bodies and a body like his glorious body. Can these things really be so? Jesus says yes, because it's what the scriptures say. And it's also dependent upon the power of God. What a glorious and wondrous truth this is is resurrection as this foundational biblical truth is is one way in which we could frame the entire story of scripture the entire message of redemption i'm going to turn to genesis chapter 3 for this particular point and there's something that that unites genesis to revelation and this idea of resurrection god created life I don't think I need to read a a verse to prove that to you. Genesis 1, Genesis 2 clearly lay that out for us, as other scriptures do. And man's sin brought death. And part of the curse which God had upon man, verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man's sin brought death in the day that he sinned, he surely died. And that was a a spiritual death, but it was also a physical death that was to come. And he lost access to the tree of life. And there's this picture here for us. 
death has come because man doesn't have access to that life-sustaining tree. Now turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on this particular point. The point is, number one, God created life. Number two, man's sin has brought death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, once again, picking up the reading in verse 21. Verse 21. For as by a man death Uh, Excuse me, let me try again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. That in Adam all have died. So we want to note that man's sin has brought death. The third point, however, is that Jesus has restored life. <coughs> Excuse me. In, continuing in verse 22, it says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So notice that here, Jesus has restored life, that in Christ we have everlasting life, and at his coming, those who belong to him. It says in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Now, I I noted, went that far, because I want to grab something here. This is where we see everything that we would say happens before and after the millennial kingdom compressed into a verse, which is a common uh, thing that happens in prophecies, for instance, with the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we work forward. Jesus has restored life. In fact, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, to bring this full circle, so we started Genesis 3, now here we are into the scriptures In Revelation 22, verse 2, we read, Through the middle of the street of the city, that city being the city that God has brought down, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So here's this picture for us of the restoration of, of life, the resurrection unto a body like Jesus' glorious body, which will be with Jesus for all time. Resurrection is a foundational biblical truth. It's a truth that spans from Genesis to Revelation. Second point, resurrection is of several types. I want to acknowledge this, and as I worked through this, Uh, recognizing that there are really four types of resurrections that kind of fit neatly into three categories. First, there is what we would call a spiritual, or I I think I, I like to use the term at this point, covenantal resurrection. Turn with me to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, that one of the ways that we could think about our salvation we could think about the gospel 
is through terms of a covenantal resurrection. So, what I mean by that, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, in Adam, we all died. In order to have a resurrection, you must have life and then lose it. Otherwise, it's not resurrection, it's conception. Right now, my wife is is pregnant, and we don't describe what happened in the womb as a resurrection. We describe it as conception. Also, there is that language of Scripture that uses for our salvation that way, where we use the term regeneration, where Jesus used the term the new birth, that when we think about it sort of individually, me, myself, Stephen Brenniger, never had life that I lost from the moment of conception. I had life when the Spirit regenerated me, when He gave me that new birth, is how we describe it. Covenantally, however, I died in Adam. In Adam, he says here, all have died. And then in verse 18, he says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one of So one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. That in Jesus, we've been raised. Jesus, as our covenant head, succeeded where Adam, as our covenant head, failed. Jesus is the second Adam. So covenantally, we could speak about our salvation as a resurrection. As Paul does here, we died in Adam. We've come to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other type of resurrection, the second category I'm calling it, so there's a spiritual category, is a temporary category. And that's the resurrections we find in passages like John chapter 11 or in Acts chapter 9, where Peter raises Tabitha. These resurrections I'm calling a temporary resurrection. Nowhere in Scripture are we said that the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of Tabitha is somehow a model of what we are to come, like we find for the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, what we find in every single case is that that person falls out of the biblical narrative. There's something to be learned from that. Lazarus did not write the book, My Three Days in Heaven, or My 24 Hours in Heaven, or or anything like that. There's that whole genre of Christian literature where I died and came back. I had some sort of resurrection, some sort of spiritual experience, and people write these books. The problem is that Jesus himself said it's completely unnecessary. Remember that scene where uh, there, there's there's the poor man, there's the rich man. And the rich man saying, hey, let me go back to my brothers. They, they don't know about this suffering. And uh, Abraham, depicted there as a representation of Christ, says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. That's, they have all that they need. So we don't need someone to come back from the dead to tell us what it's like. And as you go through the Bible, these temporary resurrections, because my assumption, and it's a bit of an assumption, is that they were raised, but they were given life back in a corruptible body. And therefore, they died later. Again, it's a bit of an assumption because they fall out of the biblical narrative. We don't have anything with them like we might have with Enoch or with uh, Elijah that they went up to heaven, that they were taken up to heaven, and death was the second, they didn't die a second time. We, We just have no evidence. So my assumption, theologically, is that that was a temporary resurrection, and they did die, and 
Lazarus is now in perfect peace with Jesus in paradise. So category one is spiritual. Category two is temporary. And my third category is the final resurrection. And as we think about the final resurrection, there are two types. And that's why I say there's four types. Spiritual, temporary, resurrection unto life, resurrection unto death. And those last two are in this category of final or eternal resurrections that will last for all time. This we find in Scripture. Turn with me first to see this to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 2. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So here's another way to phrase it. Some will be raised to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That there is these two types of resurrection. We see this also in Matthew chapter 25 from our Lord Jesus Christ. So turning over to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31. Oops. Matthew 25. I didn't turn far enough. Matthew 25. Verses 31 through 33. Now this is pictured, verse 32, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as the, shep- as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on his left. Then the king will come to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. And he goes on. So we see there, At the final judgment, again, pictured here as one event, that there's the sheep, there's the goats, one to everlasting joy, one to everlasting contempt. Now, we know from Scripture that the resurrection of the righteous or unto life or unto joy, however you want to phrase it, comes because of what we have in Christ. We've seen that, and I don't want you to sort of miss that through all of this, is that it's it's a judgment in the sense that God's going to reward his people, which is amazing to think about because all that we have, all that we are, all of our service is through him. And resurrection is of these two types. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Digging in a little bit about this, this my third category here of resurrection that is here. John chapter 5, to, to look at sort of the distinction here a little bit, starting in verse 19 of John chapter 5. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son came to do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here it is. Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the authority to give life, to give everlasting life. We're reminded of what Jesus says. It comes to my mind that we should not fear man who certainly can take this physical life from me, could kill me. No, we're to fear God and man, or excuse me, we're to fear God because he can take both the body and the soul. One of the, I I chuckle every time I think about it and every time I read it in John 11, Jesus does this miracle, this resurrection, which is indisputable. And so the religious leaders get together and say, what are we going to do? We can't dispute that he's risen someone from the dead and the Romans might come and, and take away our place. What does it matter if the Romans come and take away our place? The one who has the authority over life and death, if he gives us life, no man can take it from us. And at that final resurrection, we will have the fullness of that. And this is based upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus has the life and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here we see Jesus says all. This is one of those times in Scripture where all means all. That there are two types of resurrection. All will come forth. Some will come forth to life and others unto judgment, as he describes it here. Resurrection is of these several types. Now, the focus of my lecture is that final or eternal resurrection. But we have to look at those other types because now we come to an important point. My first two points, there's been no argument within biblical Christianity. Certainly something I said you might disagree with, but as big heads of doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection is a precious, precious doctrine for all Christians. I consulted Turretin's systematic on the resurrection, and his chapter on the resurrection, I agreed with everything he said, except one sentence that was almost a, not a throwaway, but just a comment about Revelation chapter 20. So these two points that I've covered so far are held in common by all Bible believers. The third point, or or excuse me, the difference comes in at my third point, which is a hallmark of Presbyterian, it's not Presbyterianism, premillennialism, excuse me. Uh, This third point of mine is the hallmark, one of the hallmarks of premillennialism. And we want to remember that, yes, we've seen verses which picture this act of judgment happening all at once. And in many ways, prophecy is often like a mountain range. That when we view it from a great distance, it looks like it's right together. They're touching each other. But when we turn it 
sideways, we see that there is some distance between them. And that's where Revelation chapter 20 comes in. My third point is this. Resurrection is in two distinct phases. That final resurrection, that eternal resurrection, my third category is in two distinct phases. And we see that in Revelation chapter 20. So turn with me there. This is the battleground. Now, this is an internal battle. This is a a discussion, maybe I should say discussion ground, not battleground, within the church. And granted, let's acknowledge, Revelation can be difficult to interpret. And the question, as you wrestle through all 22 chapters of Revelation, is really how literal do you take it? There are some passages that seem to be pretty literally intended to be taken. For instance, the the, the letters to the churches at the beginning of the book. I think most of us want to take chapters 21 and 22 fairly literally. But the question is, how literal do we take these opening verses of chapter 20, or most of chapter 20, for that reason? I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number, their number is like the sand of the sea. Let me read a little bit further. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Let me just say it's a little bit outside the scope of my lecture But there's a wonderful, wonderful application for us. And that's this. I don't know what problem you might be facing. I don't know what difficulty you might be facing. But I think it's fair to say that you are not facing the sum total of humanity's strength. In these last verses, starting in verse 9 and and through verse uh, 10 there, all of the wicked that are on the earth, come together and they surround the saints of God. They have all their wisdom, all their strength, all their power. They're going to bring against the people of God. And at that day, 
the people of God don't even pick up a sword, but fire a sword, but fire comes down from heaven and slays all the enemies of God's people, and we go into everlasting peace. What a glorious truth. My children have trouble from time to time, and I wish I could help them. I wish I could take it from them, but I don't have the power. There is nothing you face, child of God, that God could not take from you in a moment if he chose. Those trials are there for a reason. And everything we know about God, his holiness, his glory, his goodness, his love, his power for you, believer, says he allows that in your life for a good reason. So take heart, people of God. In Revelation chapter 20, the discussion that we have to face here about these two distinct phases. You very clearly, you have a thousand years. You have a first resurrection. You have a second resurrection. Some have suggested that that phrase at the end of verse four, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, that that coming to life there, that's, that's the whole discussion. What is this first resurrection? Well, as I've studied this, I see that there are really three options. One of the options is that it is presence in paradise with Jesus. That it's that that life that the saints who sleep in the grave, their bodies sleep, but their souls are alive. We don't believe in soul sleep. We don't believe in an unconscious intermediate state between someone's death and the resurrection. We believe that they're either conscious in heaven, in paradise with Jesus, as he said to the thief on the cross, or they're suffering in the pit of fire and tormenting, awaiting the day of resurrection. Some have said that this first resurrection is the presence with the saints in paradise, or the presence in paradise with Jesus that the saints have. Others have suggested that this is what I've called the covenantal resurrection, salvation, regeneration, the new birth, and the life that we have with Jesus. I, and the professors at Western Reform Seminary, which I am not one of, but we understand this to be the final resurrection to life, the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection to everlasting joy. Why is that? Well, first, let's talk about why I don't believe these are those other two options. First off, that it's not those in paradise because they've already been pictured. Now, I understand that that we've got to sort of wade through this passage and we have to understand what we should take very literally and what is more figurative. However, let's agree on this, that everything in this passage has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore is to communicate truth. And within this passage... Before they come to life, those souls are already present. So, in essence, before coming to life, they're already pictured as present in paradise. Also, I would say this cannot be the covenantal resurrection of being dead in Adam and alive in Christ, because it's noted here that, verse 4, that they had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. In Adam, we don't describe that death in Adam as martyrdom. 
that death in Adam is described as rebellion. Therefore, to suggest that this is that resurrection, I think, would be outside the scope of what John is communicating to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what God is communicating through this vision that he gave to John. That it wouldn't fit to say that this is salvation because their death here was not Adam's rebellion, but their death here was martyrdom, was service to God. So, what is our other option? Well, we, we know in the four types I presented, it can't possibly be the last type because these are the people of God. So, that only leaves us with the resurrection of life. And let me build a little bit more of an argument for that. First of all, I would argue that this is a future event. In verses 1 through 3, we have the binding of Satan. Again, there are multiple options, but let's look at the imagery and what the imagery describes for us. The imagery describes for us an angel having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and coming and binding Satan so that he's no longer active. He's been put in prison. He's been chained in prison and he's held there for this thousand year period, this millennial reign. Now, does that imagery square with what we read about the warning from Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, where he's writing to the church and he's exhorting the church and he's warning the church about the enemy of our soul, Satan, who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That imagery does not square with the imagery of someone who cannot deceive the nations. Are we to think, as Peter writes to the people of God, that he can't deceive the nations, but he can he can consume the people of God? Certainly not. So I would argue that this binding of Satan is yet future. Second point for this first resurrection being the resurrection of of life is that the dead, they died for their faith, and verse 4 describes them as coming to life. And uh, the, the Greek here is that they came to life, is the imagery, and they reigned with Christ. So they were dead for their faith, they now come to life. Compare that also with what we read about the fact that the rest of the dead did not come to life. Notice here, if, if, this is, if this first coming to life is salvation or presence in heaven, it doesn't make sense that, that, that we have to, to understand this second, now in verse 5, about those who did not come, we have to understand that completely differently than that first one. Instead of seeing a parallel, no, there was a resurrection. The first resurrection unto life, and that second resurrection unto judgment. Another reason why this first resurrection equals the resurrection of life is because of the final rebellion, which Professor Chris Lynch talked about in his lecture. He, he noted in that lecture that there was a resurrection and the people of God were living in the land before the final rebellion. And this final rebellion we've read about already in Revelation chapter 20 
and how God is going to deliver his people. That here his people are gathered in one city, which fits nicely with the millennial kingdom. And now the people have come against them after Satan had been loosed. And this final rebellion happens. After that final rebellion comes the judgment, the final judgment. We read about that in verses 12 through 14 of Revelation chapter 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the thrones, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that that first resurrection, the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of, of life, the resurrection of believers before the millennial kingdom. Remember, we read that the second death has no claim, no power over them. They have everlasting life. And now in this second resurrection, which we might think of as the resurrection of judgment, and uh, it's possible to understand this as well as a, a general resurrection, that during that millennial kingdom, through the preaching of the gospel, could some who lived on the earth believe and, and come into the family of God? Well, as Jesus would say, to the Sadducees, certainly by the power of God, if that's his will, that's what will happen. And there, there's this final judgment. Now, the book of life being there, meaning that book of life, which was written before the foundation of the world by our God, and everyone found there who had the love of God placed upon them in eternity past, will be part of the kingdom of God will be part of a resurrection unto life and will be part of the people of God in joy for all time. And then there's this resurrection of judgment that happens here. And it's that final resurrection. So we can see that here in Revelation 20, given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that taking everything we've studied considering the different types of resurrection, that those things fit very nicely into the imagery that is presented to us here. We're not forcing Revelation 20 on other passages of Scripture, but we're trying to understand the unified message of the Bible, which leads us to the determination that there is this resurrection of life or of uh, joy or of the righteous or of the just, however you want to, to phrase it. The Bible uses all those terms to describe it before the millennium. And then this last resurrection, mostly of judgment of the unjust after the millennial kingdom. Therefore, my position is the premillennialist position. I want to close, close not only my lecture, but I want to close our lecture series by thinking once again about the glorious future. And it's hard for me to come to Revelation 20 and read the verses I just read about that final throne, great white throne judgment and not 
draw your attention into chapter 21, into this glorious chapter that is at here at the end of our Bibles, Revelation 21, 22, such a glorious future that awaits the people of God because of the grace of God. Listen, beloved, to verse 3 of, Gen- of Revelation, excuse me, Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a joy it is to think that pain, suffering, death, mourning, crying, all those things are coming to an end at this last glorious day where we will forever be with the Lord. Truly the resurrection as uh, one of the main stories of Scripture leads us to great hope and as Paul instructed us, a great motivation as we serve the Lord.